For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water." Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at that right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much um, for bringing us together um, as a family of believers, but also bringing us together and uniting us in your word. I just pray that you would give us the ears to hear, Lord, that our hearts would be open to the changes that you want to make in us. I pray that you would um, convict us of the places that our hearts might still be hardened to your word, to your spirit. And I just pray over Anthony this morning as he brings the word um, that you would just use him, Lord, as a vessel to speak your message uh, clearly and directly to our hearts in a way that moves us to take action. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. I just wanted to give a quick introduction. Uh, one of the ways I could not preach until February was to have a couple guys preach for me. Anthony Locke. Um, I know Anthony pretty well because Anthony lived with my wife and I when we lived in Portland, while Anthony and I did the residency together at Henson. And when you get to live with somebody, you get to you get to know every you know a lot about them. Not everything, but a lot about them. And uh, I I didn't leave living with Anthony thinking uh, anything bad about him. In fact, I thought this guy's maybe a little too perfect. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Anthony is uh, is a dear brother. Um, so I, I was very thankful, especially when I saw the passage that he had to preach that uh, it was Anthony preaching it. Um, Davey, you could have done a great job too, but I think Davey was, this week was like, man, I'm glad Anthony's preaching that one. It's a little <laughs> difficult. Uh, but I asked Orion, like, hey, Orion, uh, what are a couple things that you would say about Anthony after living with him? <laughs> Is it okay if I say this? Too late. Uh, <laughs> and Orion said he's, uh, he's nerdy. He's, he's fun and he's kind. I think he meant smart, not nerdy, but uh, Orion and Anthony had the uh, challenge going of, of reading Harry Potter together. Uh, Anthony was just like one of the family members, so I'm so thankful. Anthony's also a very godly man. He's married to Natalie Locke and has a new daughter. How old is Violet? Three months. Three months old. And so he works for the city of Portland? Yep. And uh, very thankful he's going to handle the word for us this morning. Thank you, brother. Well, it's great to be here with you this morning as someone who also attended a large public university, Zot Zot Go Anteaters, UC Irvine, and who went to a younger church. Uh, a lot of what's going on here feels pretty familiar to me. Uh, it's, it's nostalgic. And uh, during my four years living in the Northwest, I've heard nothing but consistently good reports about the ministry and the leadership of this church. Uh, and it's great to finally put faces to this body of Christ. Uh, Hinson regularly prays for the branch, and they are praying for our time together this morning. Uh, just before I begin, this is not uh, a paid advertisement from Doug and from Bridget. Uh, as he mentioned, we did the pastoral internship together at Hinson, and when I got accepted to the internship, I was stunned. Uh, but I also did not know I was getting a two-for-one internship program. Uh, during the day, I got to study ecclesiology and to think about uh, pastoral ministry and pastoral leadership. But then when I went home, I got to spend some time with Doug and Bridget and their family. And just right here at the outset, I want to commend their ministry to you. I want to commend their warmth, their generosity, their hospitality. And since this is a young church, deeply relevant, their dating advice, <laughs> and their godliness to you. I'm so thankful for their lives. They've left an indelible mark on my life. 
So as we begin this morning, I want to begin with a question. Who in their right mind would volunteer to suffer? Well, if suffering means to undergo or feel pain or distress, I actually think some of us volunteer to suffer all the time. Uh, I think most of us choose to suffer when there is an obvious short-term or an obvious long-term benefit. So, for example, I start and end my showers with cold water. And you might ask, why would anyone do that? Cold showers are the worst. Well, if you go search on YouTube, like cold showers and productivity, you'll go down this long rabbit hole. Uh, there are some health benefits. There's a psychological edge. Some of you exercise regularly, not because you like pain, but because you love gains. <laughs> Some of you have suffered through tough circumstances in order to advance your career. Maybe you've suffered through organic chemistry or that really difficult upper division class. Uh, maybe you've suffered through an unpaid internship with a micromanager. Some of you may have had a baby. Enough said there. I think when the goal and duration of our uh, voluntary suffering is clear, it makes it easier to, to buckle up and to persevere through it. But what happens when the goal and the duration of our suffering are less clear or unclear? You know, in a broken world, this is often the case when we experience involuntary suffering. You know, this kind of suffering is hard for a number of reasons. First, sometimes it just, it just doesn't make sense. There is a senselessness to sin, and so we think of the suffering of physical or sexual abuse. Sometimes uh, our suffering doesn't come with an expiration date, or it's unpredictable. Perhaps you have a loved one who has a recent cancer diagnosis, and so you think about that process of going through chemotherapy and radiation, just not quite sure if it has worked. And so you wait, and you are hoping against all hope that the cancer will not come back, but you, you just don't know. Suffering can even be unjust, like being fired from your job for religious beliefs, like the fire chief down in Atlanta. I think when suffering is senseless, indefinite, or even unjust, it is much harder to endure. So what would cause someone to suffer if there was no short-term or even long-term benefits? What kind of person would voluntarily choose senseless, indefinite, unpredictable, or unjust suffering. And I know you guys have been in First Peter for a while, and here we arrive at the uncomfortably clear argument of the New Testament, and specifically in First Peter. And that it is to be a Christian is to voluntarily sign up for potentially senseless, indefinite, and unjust suffering for the sake of Christ. So if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, we are so glad that you are here. I don't say these things to scare you away. Uh, you might be surprised to hear that the Christian life isn't some supernatural joy ride toward ease, toward health, toward wealth and prosperity, because you will not find those kinds of promises in the New Testament. And I think sometimes both Christians and non-Christians in the West forget that it costs something to be a Christian and to hold to the Bible's teaching. But do the pros of forgiveness of sins and a relationship with God outweigh the potential suffering? The Bible's answer is yes, yes, though it is not always easy. So the big question this morning that I hope to answer is this, or that I want to pose to you and I hope to answer is this, is your hope sturdy enough to endure righteous suffering? Is your hope sturdy enough to endure righteous suffering, this often senseless, indefinite, unpredictable, unjust suffering for the sake of Christ? And so if you're a note taker uh, and you have this on the back of your pamphlet, 
or the back of your bulletin. Uh, the main idea for this morning is this. Suffer with Christ. Suffer righteously with Christ because of his suffering and victory for you. Suffer with Christ because of his suffering and victory for you. So my hope is that uh, during our time this morning, you will see Christ's suffering and victory as grace-empowered fuel to persevere through righteous suffering. And so let's begin. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and, and turn there um, to the book of 1 Peter. We'll be in chapter 3, verse 18 through 22. Let me go ahead and begin by reading verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Because this is such a foundational text to understand the Christian faith, we're going to spend some time thinking about this passage. But before we can jump into our passage, we need to consider what Davy talked about last week, because our passage begins with the word for. We are jumping in the middle of Peter's argument uh, that he started last week. And so in chapter 3, verse 9, Peter writes, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but instead calls Christians to bless and do good to others. He says to be sure to have an answer a, for the hope that is in you when you suffer uh, righteously and people are intrigued by that. And then Peter kind of summarizes his previous section in verse 17. He's leading to this argument. He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so this is really what I mean when we talk about righteous suffering. What he says in verse 17, To suffer for doing what is good, for suffering for representing the cause, the mission, the teachings of Christ. And so how is righteous uh, suffering a sustainable way to live? Uh, after all, as you guys know, the author of this book thought he could righteously suffer with Christ. Uh, here are some direct quotes from Peter in the Gospels. He said, Though they all fall away from you because of you, I will never fall away. Here's a guy who thought he could suffer righteously with Christ. He says, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So what, what changed in Peter? What, what made Peter this guy who thought he could righteously suffer with Christ, and now he writes this letter as someone who has suffered for Christ and someone who would ultimately die the death of a martyr? What changed in him? Well, what changed is he said all of those things pre-cross, pre-resurrection, and so we want to consider how verse 18 can fuel our hope. Uh, Peter talks about Christ as a substitute for sins because it fuels the Christian's hope in tough times. Because what we have in Christ, the forgiveness of sin, the relationship with God, uh, fuels our hope and makes suffering for his name worth it. So what we have here in verse 18 is a summary of the core of Christianity. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, how would you describe Jesus? You know, maybe you've, uh, you're here this morning and you haven't spent a ton of time in church uh, perhaps you've always thought of Jesus as a good teacher, perhaps one in the, many, in the pantheon of rabbis and, and religious teachers that you might uh, hear about in a religious studies class. Maybe Jesus to you is nothing more than a swear word. Maybe your only thoughts about Jesus is kind of the whole recent controversy surrounding the recent Netflix show. But before you turn to culture for your understanding about Jesus, I want to suggest that the best place to begin learning about Jesus is from primary sources. Just like in any research class, it is good for you to go to the primary source. And here we have Peter, an eyewitness, summarizing the, the crux of Christ's ministry. 
So I'll read it again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You know, I don't know what you think the greatest problem in the world is, but the Bible says that our greatest problem is that apart from Christ, we are far from God. Far from God because of our sin. And oftentimes sin is described as law-breaking Sin is described as, as transgressing what God has said. I just want to throw a, another illustration that describes kind of the nature of sin. Uh, the Bible also uses uh, the illustration of adultery to describe sin. God created you to find your joy and your satisfaction in Him, but we have all gone astray. We all have looked for pleasure in anything but Him, and so our sin warrants eternal death. It has consequences. And so, if adultery is one of the only sins that God allows to break a marriage, why shouldn't God divorce us as the holy God? But the good news of the gospel stated very clearly here in verse 18, the good news is that Christ suffered the penalty and wrath of God as a substitute in your place. He bore our consequence. He bore our penalty in his body. And as Peter says here, he uh, was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. He did not stay dead. And so if you turn from your sin and place your faith in this message in verse 18, the unrighteous can become righteous. And Jesus has made a way for people to be forgiven. So if you have any questions about verse 18, feel free to talk to me or the leadership or talk to someone who brought you. Uh, don't leave this morning not considering what it would mean to be brought near to God. And though the gospel is for Christians, uh, Peter is using verse 18 specifically to encourage believers. And I know you guys have talked about this in your series in 1 Peter, but I just want to remind us that Jesus is not just the substitute for our sins on the cross, but he is also the exemplary sufferer. He is our moral exemplar in our suffering. The, the just one not only died for the unjust, but he also suffered injustice. You know, in 1 Peter 3.13, uh, Peter asks, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And he's kind of asking that rhetorically because, as Peter argues, actually there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people who would prove zealous to harm you if you do what is good. And so the Christian's hope in righteous suffering is first in the one who suffers for his people. And I just want to be clear, you know, we think about suffering, it has a pretty wide semantic range. We talked about kind of trivial suffering like cold showers and hard classes. That is a kind of suffering, that is true. Uh, there's also a kind of suffering about cancer or poverty, uh, those sort of systemic or biological uh, consequences, those are also forms of suffering. But I just want to be clear that while we could talk about comfort for that kind of suffering from this passage, Peter is very clearly talking about suffering righteously for doing the will of God. He's talking about righteous suffering. And, and who suffered more for doing good than Jesus? Jesus, the one harassed by the religious authorities. Jesus, the one who endured a sham trial, abandoned by friends, was mocked and beaten by soldiers, was ridiculed by onlookers. Jesus, the one who knew no sin and yet became sin uh, so that we might know the righteousness of God. I think Jesus wins the righteous suffering award. And so Jesus, Peter's first audience, and even Christians today, even here in Corvallis, experience righteous suffering. You know, another word that we could use to describe righteous suffering is the phrase persecution. So now, I know persecution is a pretty loaded word, 
Uh, it means hostility and ill treatment, especially because of race or political or religious beliefs. Persecution is a hostile misunderstanding. And so I just want to, right here at the outset, distinguish between two kinds of persecution, two kinds of righteous suffering. Uh, it has been said that there is a kind of a persecution that is hard persecution. Uh, hard persecution is typically what we think about when we think about people suffering righteously for the sake of Christ. Uh, hard persecution means that someone's like tangible assets or their bodies or their lives are at risk for harm. So you think about people being taken to prison, like the pastor in China who was just sentenced to nine years. We think of beatings or torture. We think of public executions. These are forms of hard persecution, and we recognize that we are blessed here in the West, in the Northwest. So many of our brothers and sisters are enduring this around the world. Uh, the BBC actually reports that this kind of hard persecution is at near genocidal levels in many parts of the world. But there's another kind of persecution, and it's called soft persecution. Uh, soft persecution is when adversaries to the gospel or to a cause apply social, financial, and political pressures on a group. And here we're talking about Christians. Again, that's social, financial, and political pressures on Christians. And Christians around the world routinely experience both hard and soft uh, persecution. And Christ is calling us to do the same. Peter is calling us to do the same, to walk in the example of Christ. You know, there are many people in America who think that the church is crying wolf to persecution, uh, to forms of soft persecution. They think, you know, how can a demographic that rules America, the so-called WASP, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, how can that group who kind of designed the infrastructure of this country claim to be a victim of the system that they built? There are many people out there who say that Christians have a martyr complex. Well, what do you think? Let's say we would go to, the, uh, go to uh, one of the parks or uh, the quads at Oregon State University or to your work break room and let's ask people to play a word association game. And the word association game, uh, and the word is Christian. What do you think people in the quad would say? What do you think people at your work would say? You know, I did this thought experiment thinking about my office, thinking about the coffee shop that I was in yesterday in Portland. Here are a few words that came to my mind. Narrow-minded. Simpleton, naive, irrelevant. Do you believe the Bible's teaching about marriage and gender? Well, then that makes you a bigot. Do you believe in the Bible's teaching about gender roles or the qualifications to be a pastor? That might make you anti-woman. And I'm not even going to get into the association between Christians and politics all I can say is that's a different can of worms, and we can say that we understand there is a guilty by association uh, attitude uh, in, many, uh, in many people who we would, who would give this uh, poll to. So what could it look like, just to try to bring it home, try to, uh, try to bring it down on the ladder of abstraction? I know we think about persecution or soft persecution, we think about a passage like this, and we think, well, that's great for the church in China, or that's great for the church in Iran. Uh, not really relevant here. Let me just think through just a couple of ideas of soft persecution that you might face, and that makes this passage and Christ's work and his victory here relevant to you. You know, being a Christian means that you are lower on the ladder of intersectionality because Christians are often seen as operating from identity as a faith of privilege, often white privilege, and political power. It could mean that people would impugn motives, uh, 
to you that don't necessarily describe your actual character. Uh, it could mean in an, in an age that celebrates deconversion stories, it may mean that you might face ridicule or exclusion because you have a family member or friends from high school or friends from college who think they've matured beyond their childhood faith. They say, oh, that Christianity thing, I remember those good old days. Yeah, I've, uh, I've set aside that crutch and now I can walk on my own. And man, you, what are you still doing going to church on a Sunday? What are you doing giving of your time and your talents and your, and your treasures to the church? Do something else with your life. And maybe when you try to engage them in spiritual conversations, they essentially say, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. You know, in, in a world uh, that celebrates different kinds of identities, Christians are often left out. Uh, for those of you in the workplace, you might walk on eggshells in your workplace or family gatherings because you know that being a Christian is a negative identity. Let me give you an example from my own resume. So I used to work for uh, the Multnomah County Public Health Division. They do excellent work, had a good boss, had good coworkers. Um, and their mission statement toward the community was healthy people in healthy communities to work in partnership with the communities we serve to assure, promote, and protect the health of the people of Multnomah County. That's great. We did great work. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, working on the, the budgets and the financial workings of those programs. But you know what their internal mission was? And they had meetings to discuss this. Uh, their internal mission was to dismantle institutional white dominance. That was the explicitly clear internal motto. And so there's nothing in there that really says, Christians, not allowed. But, you, but as, a, as someone who is a Christian and who would talk about politics and faith and my own beliefs, it made me careful to say things because we recognize the kind of views that are associated and kind of hostility embodied in that idea toward Christians. You know, some of you will face increasing difficulties in your vocation. You know, Christian lawyers in Canada are really feeling the squeeze right now. Professors in schools like OSU uh, who are Christian are increasingly rare to go into academia really in any field as a Christian outside of the philosophy department where Christians are actually experiencing somewhat of a resurgence. Uh, uh, it, it'll be a challenge for you. You know, if you are a scientist who believes in any kind of creation account, whether theistic or six-day creation, whether you're old earth or young earth, prepare to not be taken very seriously. And are you unwilling to perform an abortion? Uh, your conscience may have some difficulty working through medical school and your residency. And what Peter says is that Jesus understands what it's like to be reviled to suffer for doing good. If you read the Gospels through the lens of soft persecution, really up until uh, the Passion Week, you see that it's everywhere. Jesus knew what it was like to experience financial and social and political pressure, and he persevered in it so that you and I might come to know him, and he is the one who says, pick up your cross and follow me. And so what is God's will for you? Uh, kind of that language is used in verse um, 17. What is God's will for you? That you would choose to suffer with Christ, reflecting the hope you have in Christ. But really, righteous suffering, talking about that, is really kind of a negative way of framing Peter's argument. Stated positively, Peter is, is calling Christians to be faithful, faithful to Christ, faithful to his word, uh, in all circumstances, come what may. You know, framed positively, Christ is calling us to live a misunderstood, holy life. And so that really kind of summarizes our first point, thinking about Christ's suffering for his 
people and how that should encourage us. That should fuel our hope. Our Savior understands what we have gone through. So we look to imitate his example, not for salvation as Christians, but as, as, um, as a fruit of our discipleship to him, as, uh, to follow after him. But of course, and this section will move a bit more quickly, maybe to some of your dismay, because there's so much interesting stuff going on here in this passage. Um, but, but Christ is not merely a God who trailblazes and knows our experience of righteous suffering. He is also the one who has triumphed over all the forces, both physical and spiritual, in the world. The suffering servant is the triumphant king, and that should fuel our hope to persevere through righteous suffering. And so just real quick, right here at the outset, you know, I'd love to tell you that after many, many hours poring over many, many commentaries, looking at the original languages, that the truths of this text were made clear to me. But this is preaching and not poker. I am not interested in bluffing my way, feigning confidence so that you might believe I have something for you that uh, I don't want to overpromise here. Martin Luther, one of the reformers, one of the chief reformers said about this text, that is as strange a text and as dark a saying as any in the New Testament, so that I am not yet sure what St. Peter intended. I cannot understand, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. Hmm. <laughs> daunting. Daunting. Thanks, Luther. You know, other commentators have said that this is a passage full of mystery. They've said his words were ob- they, they must have been crystal clear to Peter's first audience. But we, we don't have some of that same clarity. But I do think that, that uh, Peter's uh, point here is quite clear. Uh, Peter wants us here to direct our gaze to see Christ's victory in order to reinforce our hope. And so Christ's victory uh, uh, over spiritual beings primarily, but really spiritual beings as they interact with the physical world, is summarized by two events, uh, two journeys. So if you look at the text um, Look in verse 19. There's really kind of two trips, two journeys being described here. The first one is in verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And then in verse 22, uh, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. And what's quite clear is that Peter is using both of these um, trips to frame Christ's victory for his people. And so... Let's start by looking at verse 19 and 20. Let me read that again. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So there are a lot of questions that you can ask about this text, but I think there are two primary ones that, I, that we should answer. Now, if you have any questions or want to talk about alternate theories, that sort of thing, uh, I'm happy to talk to you about this afterwards. Uh, the two main questions here is, uh, first, to whom does Jesus preach to? Who are these spirits in prison? Are they spirits? Are they dead believers? Are they Old Testament believers? Are they fallen angels? That's just a couple of the options. And then, number two, the other big question is, what does Jesus preach? It says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. It doesn't say he proclaimed the gospel. It doesn't say he proclaimed a message of victory. It doesn't say he proclaims a message of final condemnation. It's just not quite clear what Jesus proclaims here. So I will just say right up front, I do not confess to being smarter than Luther. But I do think there is, a, there is a proposal out there that makes sense of the evidence and makes sense of what the rest of the New Testament says. So let me suggest this to you. Jesus preaches a message of victory and final condemnation over fallen angels. So much there that we could talk about. Uh, let me just give you some of the, the reasoning behind this. 
Uh, first, uh, the word spirits is not typically used to describe humans or human souls. Like, we just really don't see that language used in the rest of the New Testament to describe actual people. Spirits are actually kind of supernatural forces moving in the world. Uh, let's see. Uh, additionally, uh, according to Jewish tradition that the audience of 1 Peter would have known well, uh, the Nephilim, so we're not going to have this for the sake of time, uh, you can read the narrative in Genesis chapter 6, uh, the sons of God uh, saw that the daughters of women, or the daughters of man were really attractive, and so they abandoned their post assigned to them by God, came and had sexual relations with uh, the, the uh, the daughters of men, and created this kind of unique, weird, hybrid generation of folks that would turn corrupt Noah's generation. That's all there in chapter 6. And so you, you should read Genesis 6 to get the full story. Um, and so many commentators believe that the spirits are the, either the Nephilim themselves or the offspring of the Nephilim who are put in prison. And so because of their transgression, they were locked up in prison after the time of the flood to be held for judgment. Let me just read two other passages from the New Testament that sort of, that, that affirms, confirms this line of thinking. In 2 Peter 2, 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That's 2 Peter 2, 4. And then in Jude 1, 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so if the spirits in prison are these fallen angels, then this was not a proclamation of the gospel. This was not a repent and believe so that you might uh, go into heaven post-death. This was a message of victory uh, for Christ, uh, a victory over the corruption and the forces of evil. And in his victory, he pronounces judgment over them. And additionally, you know, if you uh, think about the early church, and we really don't have enough time to get into this, but Paul often uses kind of strained language to describe uh, the different forces moving and operating against the church. And so you will read in specifically like uh, Colossians and Ephesians, you'll read that he says there are uh, principalities and powers and authorities that are working against the church. That's, that's really the, the basis of the spiritual warfare text at, at the end of Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, they had a worldview that said that the spiritual world intersected with the physical world, and there are forces in both worlds conspiring against the church. And so Peter here is saying that Jesus is proclaiming a message of victory over a representative of these forces. And, and so he goes to point to the Noah story. And actually, the, the whole point of uh, proclaiming to the spirits in prison, it's really serving as a prelude to Peter's main argument, talking about uh, Noah's deliverance during his time. So what is ultimately Peter's argument here? You know, we need to look actually at verse 21 to make sense of verse 20. So let me read uh, verse 21 for us. Baptism, which corresponds to this, this being um, brought safely through water, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The, the this, in verse 21, uh, refers to Noah being brought safely through the water. What we see here is that Peter is making, and this is kind of like a, kind of a big, big theological word, but we'll kind of think through it together. He is making a typological, T, 
TYPO logical argument. He is saying that Noah's deliverance in his day foreshadows a more substantive salvation in Christ. He is saying that the floodwaters in the Noah story is the shadow that points to the real work that Christ accomplishes. And so in the Noah story, the water is an agent of judgment and death over the world that reviles uh, righteous people. You know, we think about Noah. Uh, you know, Noah's really not the main point of this passage. He's kind of a passive character, but there are some key similarities between Noah's audience, or between Noah's life and Peter's audience. For example, both were righteous minorities in a hostile majority culture. Uh, they were both harassed. They were both reviled by the majority culture. There's extra biblical uh, literature uh, where, where people, or there's a tradition that says that Noah was consistently ridiculed when he was building the ark. Uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness, and Peter exhorts his listeners to kind of do the same thing. Noah realized that judgment was coming soon, and so he exhorts his readers to live in light of that. And God patiently waited for uh, repentance in Noah's day. So too he waits for repentance in Peter's day and our day. And other ways that the Noah story is similar to, uh, is similar to uh, baptism uh, so in the Noah story, the water is an agent of judgment and death over the world. And in baptism, the waters correspond with dying uh, with Christ, thus dying to your old allegiances to the world. Uh, in the Noah story, Noah's family was delivered from physical judgment. And in baptism, Christians are delivered through uh, spiritual judgment, through the wrath of God in Christ. Also, in the Noah story, the water of judgment establishes a new righteous community. Jesus wipes, or God wipes out the people of that day so that when Noah and his family got off the boat, though we know they were not without sin, they kind of represented a righteous community. So too with baptism, uh, in baptism, God is creating a new community. And and so the next time you see a baptism here at the branch, I want you to see it both as a testimony, as something to celebrate, but also as a symbol of God's victory. God's victory because there is now forgiveness of sins. He, God, and Christ promises to preserve his people. And Peter describes this forgiveness of sins in unusual language. We won't have really time to unpack all of this. Uh, but he describes... His, believer, his audience's understanding of forgiveness of sins as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. And so Christians are baptized really in two ways. Uh, first, Christians are baptized with Christ. Baptism is first a spiritual reality before it becomes a public one. That is why Christians share their testimony of how they come to faith when they get baptized, because uh, what they are doing is not uh, saving them in and of themselves and going under the physical water, but it is a representation, it is an alignment of, of their public identity and their private confession of faith. That's really what's going on in baptism. It's, it's saying, you know what that guy did 2,000 years ago? You know, the whole uh, dying and dying for sins and being raised to life. Uh, that is true for me, and I want the world to know that. That's really what's going on in baptism. But second, I think Peter's argument here, his typological argument, has implications for this church together. Uh, Christians are not just baptized with Christ, but they are also baptized into a new community, baptized into a, a new life with new people. Just like how Noah, after the flood, after he was delivered through the water, uh, emerged and he offered sacrifices, and for a while the, uh, the desire for, of the human heart wasn't to sin always. 
Um, so too in the church, though we are not perfect, that we are baptized into a new community. And so when you get baptized, uh, you are saying, by faith, I am a part of God's new community, and my faith is not merely a private experience between me and God, but that I want this local body to keep me accountable to my profession of faith. That's why baptism at the branch is a requirement for membership. Uh, it's saying that I am going public with my profession of faith, and I want to be held accountable to it. I know that I can be tempted to sin, I can be tempted to wander, and I've got this Jesus jersey on because I've gone public with my faith, and you know, when we wander off into sin, our jersey color may look more like the world, and so what we're, what we're doing here in baptism is we are saying, uh, I want to... I want to make my testimony of faith clear to a watching world. And so, if you're here and you have not been baptized, consider this. It's not, baptism is not some kind of spiritual level up. It's not this uh, doctrine for more mature Christians. Uh, baptism is a desire, a plea to walk in community and faith. It's recognizing that you've got blind spots and you want to be held accountable for those blind spots. Well, finally, we come to our last verse, which in some ways mirrors much of what we've been saying so far. So let me read it for us. Describing Jesus in the resurrection who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. I just want to say here as we approach the conclusion, that I think we need to reincorporate the ascension of Christ into our understanding of the gospel, specifically in our post-Christian world, in a society where the soft persecution is ramping up. Peter is using the ascension as an encouragement to the believers. Uh, he says the ascension is a Christian's hope in a day of trouble. And the ascension is a reminder that Christ reigns today. Someone has their hand on the wheel, and God is sovereign, and he is working all things for the good of his people. And so this language here, uh, so, uh, sorry, one sec. Um, so how, how many of you have heard the phrase, uh, if you can't beat them, join them. Now, that's a pretty, pretty, pretty common phrase. I think this is going to increasingly be a tension that we feel in our day as Christians living in this community. You know, there may be moments when you are tempted to think, what good is justification by faith when my friends and my family and my coworkers think I'm a dummy? They think I'm a fool for doing this whole church thing? You might ask yourself, what good is this spiritual baptism if I'm consistently misunderstood or excluded from things? It feels like whenever we turn on our phones, turn on the media, uh, it feels like the culture is increasingly trying to marginalize and demonize Christianity. You know, if you uh, suffer in a different kind of way, uh, if you like suffering like I do and like reading uh, mainstream media headlines, uh, what you'll often see is that whenever a headline comes up about the church, it's always about conflict in the church. It's always about someone in the church messing up. There, there's, there's no positive coverage about faith and Christianity largely in the mainstream media. Um, it's just an example of the cultural pressure that you might feel day to day as you um, live your life. What Peter has to say here is he quotes, uh, he kind of alludes to Psalm 110. He says, Jesus has risen from the dead and he has ascended to the right hand of God. And that matters for you and your life today. In Psalm 110, the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament, uh, it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
And Peter says in the ascension that all forces moving against the church, whether spiritual or earthly, have been subject to the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Another New Testament puts it like this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so when the financial pressure is turned up and you're tempted to put your faith in your career or your 401k or your degree instead of Christ, remember what Peter says in chapter 1. He says, There is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiling, and unfading, kept in heaven for you by Christ. He also says, The tested genuineness of your faith, this testing, more precious than gold. Uh, when the social pressure is turned up and you're tempted to put your hope in praise or acceptance of coworkers, family or friends, remember that God has been faithful to preserve for himself a people that will worship around the throne forever. And that has been confirmed because Jesus has gone into heaven for the first time, come to earth, gone to heaven the first time, and is certainly coming again. And when the political pressure is turned up, and you're tempted to put your hope blindly in a political leader, remember that Christ is still on his throne. He's got his hand on the wheel. So vote your conscience, honor the emperor, and get back to doing God's work the way he says it should be done. So to return to the original question, who's crazy enough to volunteer for senseless, unpredictable, and... Uh, and unjust suffering. It's people who have been forgiven of their sins. People who have been baptized into Christ and to his church. People who are citizens of another kingdom. In other words, Christians. May Christ establish this in our hearts this week. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to you as the God who has suffered and the God who reigns. We recognize this, the tremendous difficulty that you have called us to. And so, unless you move in our hearts and in our lives, we cannot endure righteously for long. We see so much of Peter pre-cross in our own lives. Father, help us to... Uh, to see your work more clearly so that we would follow after you faithfully. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.